due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. The Ukrainians have got two good keys and one key that's getting better, logistics, and the Russians have got three bad keys. So I, I think that Russia loses the war, loses Crimea in particular, which is very symbolic because that's the place he took over back in 2014. And then that means that Putin is in trouble because Russia doesn't like its leaders who lose wars. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by journalist John Sweeney, who is the author of the book, Killer in the Kremlin. John joins me from Kiev, and we discuss the first anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine. I hope you find this episode interesting. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. John, welcome to the podcast. Cheers, Chris. Good to have you on. For the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with your work, please just tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a former BBC reporter, and as such, I went undercover to North Korea. I annoyed the Church of Scientology. I annoyed Donald Trump by asking him about his connection with the um, the Russian and the New York, his connections, mm. New York and Russian mafia. And I annoyed Vladimir Putin when I challenged him about the shooting down of MH17. Um, that's a funny story. But um, I left the BBC in 2019, and I did a podcast about uh, Glenn Maxwell called Hunting Glenn. I've written a book about it that's got the same name. And last February, a year ago, I um, took myself off to Kiev on my own, at my own expense, and set up, basically, I do a daily video. I've got patrons who pay for me to be here. And I reported on the whole of Battle Kiev, and I stayed, I never left the city. Um, when the Russian army was 12 miles away. And and I am now uh, reporting as, as much as I can. Some of the time I go back to London, but most of the time I'm in Ukraine reporting on uh, Russia's war. And uh, I've also written a book called Killer in the Kremlin. It's um, out in paperback just now. Uh, a few days ago, it came out in paperback. Uh, and that's, um, as you can tell from the title, it's not particularly supportive of the master of the Kremlin. No. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. So, John, as you were saying, you've been based mainly in Kiev since uh, the 14th of February last year, I believe it was. Can you talk to us about some of the things that you've seen, especially stuff that kind of goes counter to Putin and his supporters' claims? Okay. Uh, Zelensky's regime, Ukraine is neo-Nazi. I'm... I'm I, <laughs> At the very start of the war, the Jewish Chronicle phoned me up and said, can, we, can you be our stringer? You can write what you like, but, you know, you just report for us. And I said, um, listen, I'm not Jewish. I'm 
you know, I'm bad Catholic, lapsed Catholic. I, I eat bacon sandwiches. We don't care. And then there was a bit of a pause. And then the guy said, there's no one else. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the reporter for the Jewish Chronicle, which, of course, is a Jewish paper in a neo-Nazi state. But I, I was arrested on day two of the war for being a Russian spy. But, you know, okay, there's a simple absurdity. The Russian case is belly is the Zelensky government is neo-Nazi. Nazis don't like Jews. Now, Zelensky's Jewish. The the chief rabbi of Ukraine um, is very Jewish, and he's a friend of mine. And he's, you know, what are they, what are they talking about? Neo-Nazi? I mean, he really goes on and on and on. He's kind of... I like to call him Schrodinger's rabbi because he's both here and there because he's always zipping around the bloody trying to track him down to get a quote. It's a, a nightmare. So in simple terms, the Ukrainians are defending their homes and the Russian reason for the war is to, to bring down a neo-Nazi government that threatens them. And it's inherently not Nazi at all. That's just nonsense. We can go into detail about this. So the Wagner army is this big private army run by this ex-gangster, actually, current gangster, Brigoshin. But the actual leader of the Wagner army is another gangster, a Russian, obviously, fighting alongside the Russian army. And this man has SS flashes tattooed onto his um, um, shoulders, his clavicle, they are. So... That's far more Nazi. It's called the Wagner Army after Wagner, Hitler's favorite composer. And also another thing, Nazi is as Nazi does. What you've got is a, a, a peaceful country invaded first uh, in a limited fashion in 2014, and then the big war um, last February. And that is a very Nazi way of behaving. And the last big time a big European country invaded uh, a smaller European country. It was 1939, and that was a Nazi invasion of Poland. Um, and then, obviously, that set um, you know the Second World War um, in tracks, set Europe ablaze. And so, in my simple view, Nazi is as Nazi does. The Russians under Putin are far more Nazi than the Ukrainians. Ukrainians are a democracy. They've got a limit. You have to have 5% of the vote before you can get into parliament. And none of the far-right parties got more than 5%. It's a a proper secular democracy, like Britain, like France, like Italy, like Holland. And we all know, know, all of us, every single one of those countries I've just listed, we've got lots of problems, got lots of issues. But it but Ukraine is a democracy like Britain is a democracy, like France is a democracy. And the idea that it isn't, or it's some kind of neo-Nazi state, is just dark nonsense. But the thing which really gets me angry, Chris, is there are many, many people in the world with powerful voices who believe this dark Russian fairy story. So, for example... Let's have a look at the Kremlin's most popular useful idiot in the United States, Donald Trump. And, and then underneath him, there is Tucker Carlson. Now, Tucker Carlson is the, the most watched um, American cable TV host in the United States. And, and, and he supports this narrative. 
And then you've got you know, not necessarily people, but in terms of governments who more or less go along with the Russian lie factory, you've got the governments of China and the governments of India, South Africa. You've actually probably got a majority of the peoples in the world under these very dodgy governments who take Russia's side. And, and, and I find it incredible. I'm actually, um, if any of your listeners have got any dosh, and, and, and looking at um, looking at your backdrop, I doubt it. <laughs> but if they, if they, uh, sorry, that's getting wrong. But if they've got any dosh, I'm uh, crowdfunding the film with Byline TV called Putin's World War Three. And what we're trying to do is both set out what the Russian killing machine is doing, but also setting out the um, Russia's, I mean, the challenge, what we're trying to do is challenge Russia's disinformation at war, its lying machine. And it, and to be fair, its lying machine is effective. Yes, it is. What's so enraging about that is with my own eyes, I've seen a, um, I've seen the key TV tower attack. I saw the Ukrainian cops pick up the corpses of people killed by a Russian missile. Um, an old man, a mother, and her five-year-old daughter. So cops picked the, the bodies up and took them off to the morgue. Now, I saw that with my own eyes. I um, had lots of uh, troubles when I was at the BBC. My whole my entire career was a story of trouble, but... I think the viewers like me as a, as a reporter on Panorama Newsnight because I was obviously a free spirit. And if you could kind of tell that if management gave me a script to read out, which I didn't agree with, I would just rip it up and come out with what I actually said. I'm one of those people. And therefore, the idea that I'm... Somebody on Twitter the other day called me a deep state drama queen. Well, <laughs> terrific. You know. It's a ringing endorsement these days, isn't it? <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, but but it's it's. Um, I mean, the, the problem is that social media has empowered the rotting of minds, mm. and also the uh, conglomeration of rotten minds or rotting minds into really quite big kind of sort of what's those things. Um, um, in the sewers these days, they're called sonic fatbergs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what you have is fatbergs of information which conglomerate and accumulate in the in the sewers of social media, and they become more and more powerful, and their, their mass becomes their own legitimacy. And it, there is no root whatsoever in reality. And, and, and like, it, it is... I'm, you know, I'm trying just to tell. Do not believe Vladimir Putin's dark fairy stories. You know, it's, it's, he lives in a fantasy. Putin. I, I mean, I I wrestle with this. Why the fuck? Like, can I swear? Of course you can. Yeah. Well, I just have. yeah. So, by the way, <laughs> this is what's very childish uh, about me is having left the BBC, where you couldn't swear at all. Yeah. I now do a daily podcast, um, uh, or sorry, a daily video uh, for my Twitter followers. War Diary Day something something. Every single one that ends with the following phrase. I have a a simple message for Vladimir Putin, and it goes like this: Vladimir Putin, do fuck off, and, and I and I. It gives me such pleasure. Yeah. It's also because I'm swearing. But anyway, back to the main uh, and I think very, very BBC point. 
in that although I've left the organisation, I still hold to to its essential fairness. Mm. But, um, you know, if I was to see war crimes on the Ukrainian side, I would report them. If I was to see Nazi influence I, in Ukraine, I would report it. But I don't. And the reason I don't is because it doesn't really exist in the same way, although the British Army and the British the RAF, oh, they got lots of things wrong. Because we lived in, during the Second World War, we're an open society. Eventually, these stories get told. And, and, and Ukraine feels like it. But there is a real problem if millions, billions of people around the world have been uh, have become part of Vladimir Putin's fatbergs in information sewers. And, and that's, it's troubling. And I find it, anyway, it's my, my goal in life is to, is to challenge this dark fairy story nonsense because there's something of the occult about it in the same way that Hitler and Himmler and some of the other Nazis were obsessed with, you know, pagan runes and the occult. Then in 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 non-reason, in unreason, and this it, it it really offends me when I'm told. I mean, you know, um, people were saying, you know, this isn't a war. Why was Biden, you know, Biden and Bono allowed to to wander around Kiev and the war was switched off? Now, there's perfectly good reasons for this. Is that the Russians fear um American retaliation, so they're not going to keep Biden. It doesn't mean the war has stopped. The war is going on in the south and east of the country. And of course Biden's left now, so we all expect there to be a swarm missile attack sometime soon. So challenging this dark these dark fairy stories is the great mission of the the sunset of my career. Um and, and it's why I wrote my book, Killer in the Kremlin. It's just trying to set down in simple uh, English why, um, if you study Vladimir Putin, you realize he's not just a killer, he's a serial killer. And negotiating with him is foolish because you can't negotiate something like this. Mm-hmm. No, indeed, indeed. Well, just with that neo-Nazi story i remember or sorry neo-nazi lie i remember the Euromaiden protests when they were happening and um i remember quite a few people online were spreading this idea that oh the Euromaiden protesters are all just neo-nazis when in fact they wanted to free ukraine it could be part of the eu and it was just amazing how that lie spread through quite a few friends of mine who would be of the left-wing persuasion and it just showed the reach of sort of putin's propaganda yes but some of it would have been putin's propaganda machine so the problem with social media is because um, the conventional, rather the approval of anonymity, means you don't know who you're dealing with. Mm, mm. You know, when attractive Valerie from Kentucky rebukes me for being um, a deep state drama queen, is she really from Kentucky? Is she actually Igor from Saint Petersburg? Is she being paid by Prigozhin, a gangster? And so there is a real problem that social media has has managed to um, to create a kind of fatberg, um, fat-free fatberg machine, which which gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. Now, I think the poison tide was in 2016 when when we had first Brexit, then Trump, 
Um, and, and both of those, I think, were Kremlin goals. And I'm um, deeply suspicious. Um, the Americans are pretty convinced now that, yes, the Russian secret state helped elect Donald Trump to the White House. And I believe that the Russian deep state, the Russian uh, secret state, helped um, push Britain to vote for Brexit. Whether that influence is critical, I don't care. Um, the problem is, you know, like, where's the evidence? Well, my friend Christopher Steele, former MI6 officer, says the people who can actually look at this are MI5, MI6, and the um, GCHQ. If the Conservative government doesn't ask these people to do this stuff, they won't do it. So, and of course, the Conservative Party in government has a vested interest in not finding out whether Brexit was was funded by the Russian secret state, because that would be embarrassing. Yes, yeah. How does Putin's invasion of Ukraine, do you think, uh, how did it sort of fit into his planned wider geopolitical plans? Because I'm not sure they're going to plan now. You know, we've had the 2016 election of Trump, Brexit, and Russia funding far-right parties in Europe and the US. How does his war with Ukraine kind of fit into all that? Now, I wrestle with this, Chris, mm. but my best way of understanding what happened is that Putin is a man who wears 1970s KGB glasses and he's myopic. He has no understanding of the 21st century. Um, and the problem is he has caused everybody like me or you or many, many others who would challenge his worldview and say, you're wrong, pal, have been shot or poisoned or fallen out of a window because reality has been um, removed from the Kremlin's information system. Then it's easier for the half men who serve him to go along with his dark fairy stories. And they are as follows, that Ukraine does not really exist as a, as, a, as a country, as an entity in its own right, that everybody in the Western world is weak and feeble, that we don't really care about democracy, that we're all gay or transgender, that because of our liberalism, our liberalism has led for our societies to be eternally at our throats, and therefore we can no longer function. Um, now, it so turns out, but all of that is bollocks because the Ukrainians heroically and brilliantly and bravely have taught us two wonderful messages. Democracy must be defended and free speech does not come free. But those messages have run home. So yes, there is a terrifying power of the Russian lying machine, the fog machine, the disinformation machine. It's powerful and big at the same time in the West, in particular in the United States under Joe Biden and um, in nearly all of Europe. And I'm very proud to say very much is the case in Britain that, that actually we do get it and we do understand that a peaceful democracy has been attacked by a fascist neighbor. So Putin is a man who sits at the very long, wrong end and the very long end of a very long COVID decontamination tunnel. He, he's not mad 
in the technical clinical psychiatric sense. And my friend Semin Glusman, who's the president of the Ukrainian Psychiatric Association and a very funny and very brilliant psychiatrist, uh, I asked him once uh, before the war about when, you know, remember when um, Putin interviewed Macron on this enormous long table. And I said, what's with the long table? Yeah. Uh, and Semyon yeah. says that is the distance between Putin and his death. Mm. Lovely line. But, uh, but Semyon says Putin's not mad. He doesn't hear voices. He, um, he's not hallucinating. He's bad, like Hitler or Stalin, but he's not mad. Mm. But mm. his badness is... Um, is made darker and more difficult to study because he sits in a cell of his own device where where the the windows are sealed shut and the curtains and drapes are, are, are very tight and there's very very little natural light or fresh air or challenge in his worldview and and so this um this means that he he doesn't see reality so he's a man and what's grimly fascinating about him is that he's 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 very streetwise and he's a judo player from when he was a kid he was uh, effectively he was dirt poor and and there's a, a friend of mine jim fallon who's a professor of psychiatry at the university of california Jim believes that Putin was abandoned by his natural mother, some catastrophic, awful harm done to him. So I think both abandonment and sexual abuse at a very, very young age, and Jim's working hypothesis is that this is also the case of Stalin and Mao and Hitler. So it's very, very common for really pitiless psychopathic world leaders who have been brought up in horrible emotional deprivation from the age of one or two. And, and Putin falls into that category. And the first bit of stability he found in his life was a guy called Leo the Sportsman, who was, who when he died, his graveyard in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg's, wrote, I am dead, but the mafia is immortal. So long before Putin joins the KGB, he's effectively, uh, um, he's like, um, in Oliver Twist, who's the, who's the dodgy um, kid who looks after Arthur? Um, there's Fagan is the boss. Anyway, Putin becomes a kind of child, um, a child soldier of this gangster, Leo the sportsman, before he joins the KGB. So Putin's worldview is the worldview of a gangster. He talks gangsterese. He thinks like a gangster. And we have to deal with him as if he's a gangster because that's it's our best way of understanding. So I get very frustrated when Macron and Schultz, in particular, keep on saying, you know, we've got to give him some negotiating room. The guys, Vladimir Putin is a psychopath with a 
the psychopath in a gangster suit. The, the idea that you can negotiate with somebody who's fundamentally unreliable, who fundamentally wants to um, to smash and challenge and break people and control them, you, you know, that's not a good party for a negotiation. So it's absurd. Yeah, deeply worrying because obviously he's got control of a very big nuclear arsenal. In September, I was worried about that, and quite a few of my Ukrainian friends were. Mm. And basically, the rhetoric, you know, the goon show on Russian TV, most nights, but, you know, uh, worry, 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 ang, sang, sang. Then there's a bit when the Chinese start saying, we want no nuclear mm. crises. The first guy is the deputy ambassador at the UN, and then somebody more senior says it, and then Xi says it. Um, at the there was a big tyrant or us power somewhere out east in one of the stands. Get where there are three reasons for this: the Chinese economy is in serious trouble, and that's because uh, the Chinese have made the same mistake we made um, with the Lehman Brothers crisis. They maxed out on their credit card; they built too much property, and that was running empty. And because it's a a, a very highly authoritarian society or, or sub-totalitarian, then they, they're trying to mask the, the fact that they've maxed out on their credit card. Number two, they had a terrible drought last summer. It was a tributary of the Yangtze that was bone dry. Number three, their vaccination mm. is rubbish. And again, this is all arguments for um, democracy. Because everybody who tells the truth or, or at least challenges the official lie has been poisoned or shot and dared not even open their mouth in China, then there's nobody to say, you know what, this vaccination system we've got, this vaccine doesn't work properly. And so they've had to open um, China up. Uh, the reason was because when everybody saw the football, I saw there was massive stadiums, 100,000 people in um, in Qatar, and no one's wearing a mask. And the Chinese go, well, how, how's that possible? Well, it's possible in an open society when people get proper good vaccinations. So they've opened up, and now, you know, thousands and thousands of Chinese people, in particular the elderly and firm, are dying every day, and they can't stop it. China needs America and Europe to buy their ship. Um, Spain, um, Russia's economy is smaller than Spain. Um, Russia is an important partner. And on the nuclear issue, China is very afraid that if Putin uses a tactical nuke, then that will cause a global recession. And, and that will really damage the Chinese economy. And that will lead to the kind of social unrest that the Chinese Communist Party are extremely afraid of. So I don't think that Vladimir Putin really, really wants to upset his Chinese partners. Now, he can huff and puff about nukes, but he's not going to actually press the button. Secondly, Russia is next door to Ukraine. He irradiates Ukraine, he irradiates southern Russia. Rostov on Don is just next door. Thirdly, the Americans have said, the gossip is the CIA, have said directly, you hit Ukraine with a nuke and we will vaporize the Russian fleet 
and the Russian army in Ukraine, only in Ukraine, with conventional missiles, and they have the power to do that. And finally, um, my great friend Paul Conroy, who's a former soldier, says, I don't think Putin's going to do it, because when he presses the red button, you need five, there are about five people in the system, all of whom have then got to press their own red button for the red button to work. And at least one of them is going to be a Russian version of Paul Conroy, who isn't going to do it. Now, by the way, February the 23rd, Vladimir Putin, I think, had control over his Kremlin machinery. But from February the 24th, when he made this catastrophic mistake, no good reason, no good logic for the war, I think he's lost real effective power in, of his own machinery. And therefore, I think there is a, a, um, um, a significant number of Russians who would, who would not go west boss, but actually they would say, I'm sorry, the machine's broken. Since 45, using a nuke has been a no-no. And the Americans in Vietnam had nuclear bombs. They didn't use them. The Americans in Korea had nuclear bombs. They didn't use them. The Russians had nuclear bombs. The Soviet Union had nuclear bombs, and they didn't use them against the Afghans. The Americans had nuclear bombs, and they didn't use them against um, the Afghans or the Iraqis. And therefore, I think there's actually strong reasons why Putin won't do it. So what, he, what he's trying to do now is to half and puff and intimidate the West so that the, the two, what is it, the four regions that he's kind of wants to bite off, um, it's actually it's Crimea, um, Donetsk, Lugansk, um, I think it's Zaporizhia and Kherson. He, that, that's his kind of ambition. I think he would settle for keeping Crimea and what he's got of Donetsk and Lugansk. And I think in the early part of the war, the West would have, quite a lot of people in the West have said, okay, um, if, that's, if that's how the war is going to stop, then um, you win, mate. What's happened is that the Russian army has been unspeakably barbaric. And the barbarism is so evil that it's impossible for a decent democratic politician to make a case for some kind of deal with Putin. And I think confirmation of that is Joe Biden's visit to Kyiv um, yesterday, because because the civilized world cannot tolerate the rape of children, the castration of surrendered Ukrainian soldiers, the deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure. So, for example, October the 10th, the Russians sent a swarm of cruise missiles, four hit Kiev, one hit a children's playground in, um, in um, Tarashev Janko Park. No, thank God, no kids were killed on that particular occasion. But the, but what Putin's trying to do is intimidate uh, Zelensky and his government and his people into um, into settling, and it's had the opposite effect, both with Ukrainians and with the Western world. 
the 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 response has not been the one that the Kremlin planned, i.e., okay, uh, this is so horrible, we'll go along with it. It's this is so horrible. We're now not going to do a deal with you. This is so horrible. We're now going to give the Ukrainians the heavy metal they've been begging for for months and months and months. Now we're going to send them tanks, and we're probably going to send them fighters too mm. as well. Because Putin is too dark and too bad. Yeah. How is Putin holding up politically in Russia at the moment? Well, that's a, um, a very good question. If you challenge Vladimir Putin in Russia, you may die. So um, Al Capone, you know, um, what is your view of Mr. Capone? Ask a, a normal Chicago um, before he's got Nick for tax. Uh, you, you know, yeah, I think he's a, he does a lot of work for charity. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so you you kind of got to understand. It, but my my view is, um, and there's a friend of mine who goes to Russia pretty regularly, uh, and he says around a fifth of the country are in favour of the stupid war, and a fifth of the country really hates it. And then there's three fifths, sixty percent, who rub along with it. But they rub along with it because they don't actually have, you know, they can't go to McDonald's anymore because it's not McDonald's and Apple Pay doesn't work on the metro in, in, in Moscow. But essentially, their kids are being sent out to die. Now, what's happening is that's beginning to change because the Russian meat grinder is just using up too much Russian blood and Vladimir Putin needs fresh children. Um, but if I'm a, a relatively wealthy, wealthy Muscovite, I'm pissed off if I can't go on holiday to the south of France anymore. But if my son is sent to a stupid war I know is wrong, that's a different thing. And then I hit the streets. So I think that Putin is a fragile monster. I feel that 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 Russia isn't the Soviet Union, and a lot of Russians have managed to go to the West, have seen what the West is like, have, have, have liked everything about our beautiful open societies. Mm. And the idea that, that Putinism is, is better is clearly nonsensical. Um, now, you could have made the argument when the, when the times were good. Now the times are grim. What's depressing is the depth of, 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 of Putinist brainwashing. Well, um, so I knew um, Anna Politsevskaya, who was uh, in order, poisoned, then shot. And what she warned about in 2003 was the zombification of Russia because he was, because all the journalists, the proper journalists were being switched off. And that's, that is absolutely, I think, on the money. I think the, um, um, <laughs> and Anna was shot dead, but, uh, Russia is is currently zombified, and I I used to, for example, my video diaries. I used to say, "War diary day," you know, two hundred of Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine. This year in twenty twenty three, I've changed it, and I now say, "War diary day three sixty of Russia's war against Ukraine," because if you're Russian and you're not opposing this war. In, in 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 a proper way, then you're complicit. Mm. You're complicit with the war crimes. You're complicit with the barbarity. Yeah. 
So what does the future hold for Putin and Russia, do you think? So for the moment, the Ukrainians are losing a lot of people and they're losing um, they're losing a bit of territory. They may lose back with soon. I've been there seven mm. times. It's, it's so like it's like it's like pictures out of the First World War. It's incredible. But I'm optimistic in that this mass of American Western kit, Swedish, British, French, German kit will change the war in Ukraine's favor. Um, not necessarily this year, maybe this year. Mm. Uh, and they'll get Crimea. Crimea is actually easier to get back than Donetsk because Donetsk is not uh, next door to Russia. Um, but uh, Crimea itself is a, is a peninsula. So if you're on the peninsula, like you can um, you know, smash up the bridge uh, and then Putin's got a real problem resupplying his troops. But I foresee what you've got is, and it, 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 the way I look at it is you break it down. Wars are won and lost um, because of three keys. The first key is spirit. The Russian reason for the war is Ukraine is neo-Nazi. Let's start nonsense. The Ukrainian key on spirit is we're defending our homes. Mm. Ukraine wins. Logistics, Russia had more stuff, Ukraine had far less. That's changing. Too little, too late from the West, but it's now moving in the right direction. And Ukraine's logistics are getting better. At least they're honest. The Russian or less, there are problems of corruption on the Ukrainian side, but there's nothing like as corrupt as Putin's Russia. So Ukrainian logistics are getting better. Ukrainian leadership, we've got Zelensky, who is... He has faults, but he's a world-class communicator. And General Solushny under him is bloody, bloody good. The Russian generals, as the um, one of the American officials said the other day, the, the Russian generals keep on getting changed like I changed my socks. That's not good. They're fighting like cats in a bag. Um, Prigozhin and um, um, fighting with Shoigu, the Russian defense minister. None of that's good. So... The Ukrainians have got two good keys and one key that's getting better, logistics, and the Russians have got three bad keys. So I, I think that Russia loses the war, loses Crimea in particular, which is very symbolic because that's the place he took over back in 2014. And then that means that Putin is in trouble because Russia doesn't like it's leaders who lose wars. So I, I, I think at some point, um, one of the oligarchs or one of the um, secret policemen around him will arrange for him to have an accident. Or he goes under the knife and the anaesthetist makes a terrible mistake. Or, and apparently now the gossip is he doesn't go, he doesn't fly anywhere. He goes by sea or train. Um, Biden goes by train because Biden likes trains. He does, yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, Joe Biden obviously read Thomas the Tank Engine at a very early age. But um, so I think Putin leaves the Kremlin in a box, and then um, the machinery will put up one of Putin's half men. Um, but I don't think they'll last very long because the reason they're they're there is because they're half men, not because they're any good. And at some point, what, what Russia has to do is to do what Germany did, West Germany did, 
was find somebody like Willy Brandt who actually fought the Nazis and who goes to the Warsaw Ghetto and gets down on his knees and says sorry and pay reparations and 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 change and embrace what we all believe in and the democratic world and all of that. So I'm an optimistic optimist. You can also, another way of putting that is I'm a fool. I like to decide on optimism and I hope you're right. One, I've got two last questions for you, if I may. Um, I'm really intrigued to know what it was like to be in the presence of Putin because you confronted him many years ago and uh, it's an excellent video. And my second question, I suppose, really is just do you have any kind of like final thoughts as we're approaching the terrible anniversary of the war starting? So Putin is impossible to doorstep Moscow because the security security is ridiculous. He's... um, And this was after the shooting down of MH17. I went out there and I saw... I saw the dead being dumped into the back of a, a lorry. I saw uh, yeah. the Malaysia airplane seats and, um, and women's hats and, and the little suitcases, the trunkies, the little toddlers that dragged along. Mm-hmm. And when I see those things at Gatwick, I, I have a bit of PTSD and I start to cry. Mm-hmm. So how can we doorstep this fucker? And um, my very clever producer, Nick Sturdy, works out that... Um, uh, he's uh, opening a mammoth museum in Yakuts, and it's nine time zones east of London. I've been to my niece's wedding. I'm still half cut. I'm in my wedding suit. But the good news is I look like a professor of mammothology. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I get there, and I'm starving. I haven't eaten. There was no food on the planet. It was shit. Aeroflot, something like this. Anyway, so I find a kebab shop. i got to have a kebab, a wolf kebab stuff it down my throat, and then I um, we get to the museum, and then I line up. Nobody quite clocks what we're up to. And I line up with all the other professors of mammothology, which are shaking with fear. I'm shaking um, with alcohol poisoning. And uh, when Putin, and he pimp rolls, he walks like a, a gangster. He pimp rolls into the museum, and I pop out uh, from amongst my fellow professors and go, Tell me about the killings in Ukraine. And all of the Kremlin TV uh, media pools, lights are switched on because they all think wrongly this has been prearranged. And Putin is subtle and clever enough to stop and answer the question. And he just blames the Ukrainians. In the middle of his long and very, very, what he does is he uses very, very long answers in Russian with lots of legal or quasi-legal complexity, which basically takes the questioners' um, winds out of their sails, and there is no follow-up question mm. allowed. So it becomes kind of a, a, a deadening monologue, like this dictatorship for you. And, and in the middle of this boring monologue, suddenly my stomach starts to feel queasy, and I can feel kebab oh, no. slowly coming up my throat. And this and this awful sense, fuck me, Sweeney, you're going to throw up, project and vomit over the president of Russia. And by the way, there's a wall of Kremlin yeah. muscle giving me the eye um, behind him. And I thought, fuck me, if I fucking throw up over Putin, you know, that's the end of your... Well, it's not just the end of my BBC career, it's the end of uh, my life, maybe. Um, 
So I managed, I managed just about to keep the kebab down. To be honest with you, Chris, I regret it now. <laughs> it, it's a great regret of my life. It, it would have uh, been a really great moment, I think. But anyway. I'd, I'd never have to buy a beer in Kiev ever again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you probably could have made a lot of money off the royalties of the video on YouTube or something. <laughs> By the way, by the way, five hours later, there was a, a bit later, a few hours later, there was a second event in the same city some miles away where they were opening a, a pipeline or pretending to open a pipeline with the Chinese. And Putin was in a podium about like 300, big room, big hall, 300, and I was 100 feet away or more. And a bloke came up to me. I was on my own, um, producer was somewhere else. And he, as he passed me, he just thumped me in the gut, and oh, and I, you know, I so I was, you know, I, I staggered and was winded, and and that was, we don't like those sort of questions, so that's what happens. So um, there is a, um, so I, I kind of know this anyway, but Vladimir Putin is evil mm. your final question was what are the final thoughts for this awful fucking anniversary i mean i kind of so i feel ukraine is going to win i feel that they are robust and resilient the russians are still bloody awful at combined arms maneuvers they can't so the the thing you have to do in complicated modern war is um make all the bits of your machinery work together all at the same time. Means artillery and infantry and tanks and drones now, all, all working in harmony. And that requires an awful lot of training and a lot of um, seriously clever kit run by clever mm. soldiers. So we're not talking idiots. We're talking people who know how to mm. do this mm. stuff. Um, who, 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 and 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 that's what Ukraine's got in space. Like everybody's a film director or a or a um, well or or a hot air balloonist or an archaeologist. I mean, they're all mm -hmm. bright people. You meet the Russians for the moment have been using the um, um, Chechens, Muslims from um, um, from the south, Dagestani's. They're also Muslim. Buryats, they're Buddhists, they, they look um, like Mongols or Chinese uh, from the Far East. And, you know, so many of these people, the reason why they're stealing things, like they steal cattles without their bases. They steal, you know, they steal toilets um, because they haven't seen a flushing toilet before. It's kind of bonkers. Now, Putin may need to change that, but for the moment, the Russian army can't do combined arm maneuvers and the Ukrainians are getting more so, for example, they're getting very quickly, they're getting 50 of the best Swedish armoured cars with these fantastic Bofors mm. guns, which are real mm. machines. Now, uh, you you have 50 of those things moving into a battle like Bakhmut, and you can change the battlefield environment very, very quickly. Mm. So, uh, as I said, I believe that Ukraine will win the war. It's a mixture of Western heavy metal and Ukrainian courage and spirit. Now, 
by the way, that a lot of Ukrainians will die. I think Putin's going to do something tricksy before mm. the anniversary. Mm. I don't worry about that. Yeah. He may not, it may not happen, but um, but I think it's very likely that something bad will happen um, uh, to Kiev. But I also think that Ukraine is a re- robust and resilient and tough enough and big enough. It's a huge country to get through to the other side when when Ukrainian talent and Western economic power and Western technical technological sophistication will win through so i think the war ends putin is humiliated and he leaves the kremlin in a box well fingers crossed on that last point well john where can listeners find out more about you and your work so i'm uh, i don't do much on facebook but i'm on twitter at um uh, john sweeney raw as in ROAI, as in me losing my temper in the Church of Scientology. Are you a member of the Church of Scientology, Chris? No. Yeah, correct answer. <laughs> uh, um, I'm, on the, on the, I'm on the Twitter picture um, uh, banner thing. There's a Patreon account, so if you like to, if you can, and it comes hard, but if you can bung me a quid or two on Patreon, yeah. then um, I um, that would be great. Um, I'm... Um, that's whatever it is, patreon.com uh, slash John Sweeney Raw, R O A R again. And um, I've written, so if you're interested in Russia, I've written Killer in the Kremlin, which is now published by Penguin in paperback. And I do the audiobook as well. And also, I've written a thriller um, about the Holodomor, which was this awful you know, man made famine created by Stalin to oppress Ukraine and also southern Russia, but also. To, to sort of control, uh, it was a piece of it was an e- a piece of evil madness, mm. a bit like this. It was about fake news in 1933, and that's a thriller called Useful Idiot. So, uh, you know, uh, that's my stuff. Chris, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today, and um, please stay safe. And I hope we can do this again soon. Thank you. I've got some funny stories about the CIA, but that's the next time. <laughs> Excellent. (laughs) Thank you, John. Listening. This is Secrets and Spies.